1: Welcome to the next reel when the movie ends Our conversation begins Mission Impossible Rogue Nation is over Don't move a muscle if you don't have to The IMF is
0: uniquely trained and highly motivated Specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures But it is an agency of chaos The time has come to dissolve the IMF Now I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? Last I heard, he was tracking the syndicate. How come the CIA has never discovered any intel regarding the syndicate? You
1: want the polite answer or the truth? We've never
0: met before,
1: right? Follow me. Ethan, where are you? The syndicate is real. A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. They're coming after us with everything they've got. You ready? This may very well be our last mission. Let's make it count. Oh, Andy,
0: rogue nation is here.
1: Rogue nation is here.
0: Rogue nation, Christopher McQuarrie... Yeah, we're we're in the zone for this franchise.
1: We are really in the zone. Like, at this point in the movie, going into Rogue Nation, going into the theater, like, you had some rough time with this franchise after number two. You'd given up on number three until number four came out. And now here we are with Rogue Nation. Do you remember your level of excitement in 2015 when this movie came out?
0: I I mean I don't remember my level of excitement but I do know I saw this one in the theaters I I know that as has kind of become the thing now with these films they start releasing these videos on online as ways to kind of um promote the film of look how crazy Tom Cruise is this time and in this one it was like we have now with the whole motorcycle off cliff bit we had a whole thing that was just kind of a a few minutes of watching Tom Cruise hanging on to the side of a plane as it takes off. And uh, yes, it really happens. And they really emphasize that this is real. This is how committed he is to doing something crazy for all of you. And and that's pretty much probably what, uh, knowing what he had done in the fourth film, Hanging Off the Side of the Burj Khalifa, is one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to see this one. The trailer uh, was intriguing and I I definitely saw this one in the theater and and had a grand old time. Yeah, uh, me too. And
1: I now you mention it, I absolutely remember all of that uh all of the the pre-work, the showing how that Tom Cruise does the hanging off the plane bit. Um, It it seems like so much of of Tom Cruise's value is he's just like, what do you think is missing in his brain that allows him to do that stuff (laughs) without thinking about it? Like, it just feels like all the back behind the scenes stuff. He just he just says yes and does things. I wonder what it would be like to Tom Cruise my life.
0: I remember I can't remember if we talked about this when we. Uh, talked about a league of their own on the show with Gina Davis. But I remember a behind the scenes interview with her in that film talking about part of her strength as an actress is the ability to pay attention to all the, like to know what's going on with all the parts of her body. So I don't know, like when we're talking and stuff uh, or just doing anything, sometimes we have these involuntary movements or whatever and that was something that she had, uh, you know, a strong ability to control, let's just say. So if she was, as she's acting, if she wanted to move her head a certain way or not move her head at all, she could. I, I think that also speaks to, I remember, um, I can't remember the performer, but in uh, Robert Redford's quiz show, there's an actor who is... um playing a person behind a desk and robert redford's direction to him was don't move at all sit completely still with no movement and that actor said it was one of the hardest directions that he's had because he's so used to even just little movements as he talks and as gina davis said that's something she had great control over so she could control any movement that she did That's the same thing with Tom Cruise. I think that he probably has that same switch in his head, probably 10 times larger than anyone normally who has that switch, who has complete ability to do the things that he needs to do when he needs to do it and control over any sorts of fear or anything so that he doesn't have to worry about, yeah, I'm hanging on the side of a plane flying, I don't know, 200 miles an hour, whatever, you know, and uh, I'm not worried about a thing. I'm still acting. Yeah. For sure. That's like the
1: Tom Cruise somatic experience. Like what I sign up for is that he is able to be in such incredible touch with his body that he can do things that that heretofore I have been unable to do. Now, I should say, if you strap me to the side of a plane, I mean, you could fly a plane with me on the side of it. I wouldn't look as good (laughs) as
0: Tom Cruise does,
1: uh, which is which is the important differentiator.
0: I uh, yeah, I, I imagine it's hard to act. When you're being one, you're being pounded by that much wind force. Uh, two, thinking about uh, the fact that your your fingers <laughs> are are being pulled so hard into the the handholds that you're gripping that you're uh, likely cutting off all circulation to your fingertips. You know, just all those sorts of things. Yeah,
1: things are great. You, I hadn't thought of the fingertip thing. Thanks
0: for that. It's <laughs> a great
1: new addition. New addition to the anxiety bouquet. <laughs> We're talking, of course, about the opening stunt sequence where uh, Tom and his buddies uh, infiltrate a, uh, a whole big bundle of nerve gas. Uh, and the pa- that is the package. It is on the plane. And we get a sense of where the team is. And this, I think, is the first movie in the series where we have a team that is on an action and the team isn't trying to stab one another in the back.
0: They're just trying to do the job. I think that's fair to say we finally have this team although it's interesting because we we have a solid team yet the entire IMF is disavowed and and shut down <laughs> shuttered and so it's a team of people who have gone rogue it's all part of the title it's you know this little uh group of people who are operating as their own organization trying to stop this other group that's operating rogue the so-called rogue nation um, that uh, is the syndicate so it's it's interesting the way that they set up this team of very um, coordinated willing to participate people even though they're all doing it illegally
1: (laughs) yeah what do you think of the open how they bring us into the world
0: the, with the plane, the whole first shot. Like I love the first shot in the grass where we see Benji in his ghillie suit. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's um fine. It's setting up the story as far as you know. We've got spies and also kind of this goofy comedy and stuff that kind of pops in. And I think, I think that's what we're setting up. It's not like, um, who was it in? uh Was it Clear and Present Danger? where there's also like the an actor, was it Willem Dafoe? I can't remember. Anyway, somebody in a ghillie suit and they're trying to spot them and the person pops up and they're like much closer than you ever would have guessed. It's not like, yeah. ooh, Spycraft, oh my gosh, that person was so close. It's like, oh, Simon Pegg popped up in a ghillie suit, it doesn't even match the grass. It's like the, goofier. There's something goofier about the tone of comedy that they play with this, where it's not going to be a Jack Ryan sort of... Spy thriller.
1: Yes, yeah. Can I can I bring up a a thing that we haven't talked about yet with regard to this this team and this set of movies and this cast, and that is related to uh, Benji and Luther. Have do you ever have any issues with the fact that Luther was the original tech guy for Cruz, Right, he was the nerd communications ex- expert. And then he disappeared for a while and we introduced Simon Pegg as Benji, who is also the nerd tech guy, communications guy. It feels to me like this Venn diagram of skills that they're trying to sell us completely overlaps. It's a circle between these two guys, but they have had to find a way to make them useful in different
0: ways in the story, have you, has that ever crossed you up? Honestly, I've never really thought about that that much. And now I'm trying to remember, you know, what specifically have they been doing in the films? And I think like when we have Luther at, um, let's see, is it this one where he's in Malaysia? at the start and he's, he's working, he's helping on a different team. Right. He's right. And he's helping from the top of some tower, helping Benji break into this Russian satellite so that they can crack into this plane and everything. Uh, Yeah. So, so to that sense, uh, I, I suppose I still see him as the computer hacker. Uh, That seems to be kind of what he's doing, but I guess to your point, it is kind of what Benji does quite a bit also isn't it like there is a universe if
1: the audience didn't love simon pegg so much and they didn't bring him back after his role as the lab tech when he was introduced you know two three movies ago if they hadn't brought him back as the lab tech it feels like that was the fork in the road for his character he very well could have been the guy in the chair And Luther could have been gone, but they bring Luther back behind the monitor and they had to take Benji and have him. Oh, I passed the field exam. Right. Like then he becomes an agent with those skills, which I think is really cool. But it's always struck me as like there's a universe where Luther never came back and Benji was the guy in the chair behind the monitor the whole time. Right. He even makes that gag here. Oh, explore the world. See wonderful places in a tiny broom closet.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Right. There is an element to, like, the Ocean's Eleven style of team where there might be too much overlap between those particular two characters. And in a team of four, that's a lot of potential overlap. Like, in a team of eleven, when it's two brothers who are kind of doing the same thing, it doesn't matter quite as much. But here, it's like, well, yeah, maybe... because they're an identity. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it's like, well... It really, There really should be a little more differentiation between the two. I hadn't really thought about that until you brought it up, and now that's all I'm going to see now and uh, think about the (laughs) redundancies.
1: Redundancies are fine. I mean, when you look at an organization like the IMF, they're obviously going to have lots of people who have all these skills, and clearly they have written themselves away to need all these skills, and that's great.
0: Yeah, the reason is because they have so many people who are corrupt in the IMF that they have to have all these redundancies because (laughs) you need somebody else to step in once that other person is revealed.
1: 100%. There's always (laughs) going to be another corrupt official in the
0: IMF. Absolutely. I mean, what we've learned from this film is it's not just the IMF because now we have this British person from the uh, essentially the uh, double double O division. (laughs) I I like to think of of, uh, Rebecca Ferguson and Sean Harris as the essentially the golden eye pair of (laughs) this particular (laughs) franchise Bond and uh, Sean Bean's character.
1: I was thinking 006, about that with the 006, yeah. 006, yeah. I was sitting on the I was thinking about that when they uh when they're sitting on the bench along the Thames and they're looking at the MI6 building that blows up in that Bond movie. I was like, God, if we just wait long enough, will that building blow up? Like is James Bond <laughs> in there right now? Uh I thought that was funny. Anyway, um so okay. So that's our that's our opening and our setup for the team. Uh, and we get Tom's Fanta- weirdly, kind of anemic yet fantastic entrance into the film. What about the door? Can you open the door as he runs heroically up, up on the grassy knoll? <laughs> it's so funny. Um, it is. Classy and I'm like, suit. I know he's so classy. <laughs> uh, he he just he's just great, and uh, he looks great, and he r- runs like a badass, and he jumps on a giant plane wing, which is a power move uh, for sure in this movie.
0: My one note with that was, like, didn't Benji say that they're on radio silence? Why is suddenly everybody talking on the Everybody's radio? Everybody's not. Like, is there no concern <laughs> about the Russians or whoever it is, like, overhearing them? But apparently not. Apparently it's fine. That's right. Well, and and you brought up, like, the,
1: the IMF is disavowed. Well, that's happening sort of synchronously with this mission, right? That we, We're cutting back to the hearing where we uh, have Alec Baldwin... Alec Baldwin has entered the picture. Where do you, what do you think about
0: old Alec? I mean, he's the director of the CIA here, and it plays well as this person, you know, finally, we're getting a sense of these organizations and how they relate to each other. I mean, this is one of those things within this franchise where it's like, okay, there are these other organizations. Do they not communicate? Do they not work together? Do they not help one another as things are happening? It's all been IMF so far. Now we finally go, oh, okay, there is the CIA. There is the Senate. There are these organizations that do kind of oversee the IMF. And we're kind of getting a sense of that now and how the CIA, particularly the the director, uh, Hunley, played by Alec Baldwin, kind of sees what they're up to and how much of a mess they're making. And It plays well. And I I like the way I like the way that this story builds in a way there is that element to Ethan doing the same thing with Hunley in this film that he did with the Russian police who were chasing him in the last film, where it's like leading them on this goose chase to pursue him to a point where he would actually reveal to them, hey, we've actually been working to help you this whole time. And I like the way that plays a lot, and I like the... There is that nice twist at the end of this that Hunley actually ends up the new uh, secretary for the IMF.
1: Yeah, I think, for, for my money, Alec Baldwin was made to play uh, this uptight bureaucrat. Like, I really, really like him. Like, I can't get over the fact that he is uh, just the, uh, the sober, unfunny 30 Rock, right? Like, I just... I loved him in that in that character like he is he delivers humor like nobody else uh and um and in this movie you take that away and he's still just that razor sharp um you know clean cut honest to goodness GI Joe in a suit like I really really like him and and it's it I'm glad that we actually Like we, we get a little time with him. I'm glad that he goes on this hunt and I'm glad that there is a reveal at the end that actually gives us some empathy toward him. And, and I'm glad that he doesn't just like he's written in such a way that he doesn't just stay the course on his. Ass Hattery, like he actually, when he is when new information is revealed, he's able to change, and that's something that in movies drives me crazy. Um, you know when characters are so ideal, uh, such ideologues that they're not able to, you know, not able to pivot on new information. So I I really like this character a lot, and I I like the way he's positioned. I think the big question then is what do you, where do you stand on Brant and the use of Jeremy Renner in this movie?
0: Well, I, I mean it's interesting because we there is this sense that his role in the IMF has kind of shifted back to what we saw in the previous film with uh working side by side with the secretary where he kind of is a desk job guy and he's he's in the senate hearing he's actually sitting there next to uh Hanley as they're kind of going through this pro- the motions of having this conversation and he doesn't seem as involved in the mission and so it's an interesting role for him to play because he definitely seems like in this scope of teams like this, he seems like the one who is designed to be kind of like he's part of the team but he's also kind of the liaison with the uh upper echelon of management and kind of ha- handles that role within it.
1: My question for you here is actually one that connects to our other favorite cinematic universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is making Jeremy Renner a a a bureaucrat himself equivalent to making hawkeye a brainwashed uh boob for the bad guys in the avengers
0: i don't think so but it does beg the question the role of this particular character uh, I I know we talked a little bit in the last film how they had intentions as they were crafting that film of handing the whole franchise over to Brant and Brant would be the new Ethan Hunt moving forward. Ethan would step into kind of that secretary role and be managing from the back because people were concerned about Tom Cruise and, you know, crazy couch jumping, uh, you know, yelling at people and you know, all sorts of nonsense that. Past and Tom Cruise made it through all of that they They shifted the focus of the story to be Ethan Ethan stays in command as the one who's uh, out in the field and so jeremy Renner's character, his role as they initially crafted him in Ghost Protocol, kind of ended up being put back on the back burner again, and so it did it is kind of this sense of like, well, what do we do with the guy now and I mean we were just talking about Benji and Luther. Same thing with uh, Renner, like, what's his position within the team? Like, as we see them on missions, it's it's hard to gauge, are they all doing something unique? Or is it just like, Ethan's going to be the guy figuring things out, and the other three just kind of help when needed in whatever capacity. And to that extent, I, I don't know if the... The Marvel comparison is exactly comparable, but I do think there is this element of this character. I mean, he's a great actor. He's a great part of the film. I really enjoy him being here. But it does make you wonder, is in the scope of a story about a team doing stuff, does this film have as much teamwork as the last film? um you know like is there a specific element within this story where you see here's all four of the team members they're all working together to achieve um you know this particular um thing yeah
1: yeah well and that's that's the that's the interesting thing to me like i uh, personally because uh, that i like jeremy renner so much as a as a performer it feels to me like they answered the question what do we do with jeremy after this pivot like i also you know i'm i'm watching behind the scenes stuff and you hear like tom cruise say you know i was working with McHugh on uh, i think he he mentioned either it was something about jack reacher or uh, edge of tomorrow like they were talking about things and he just said i really like the way he thinks about story, and I just said to him, Hey, you should direct this next movie. And they are clearly friends, and it felt like when Macquarie comes in and gets writing credit for this movie, it feels very much like that transition reads to me like Tom Cruise is is still gonna be the hero. He's never gonna be a bureaucrat. And I know we had originally talked about Renner doing this thing, but there's there's no way he's going to take the action hero mantle from Tom Cruise yet. Like, it's just not going to that's not going to play in a movie that Macquarie and, and Cruz are going to make. And so I don't I, you know, it's a bummer for Renner because it feels like yet again, he gets trapped in this box of being a likable guy and uh, kind of an authentic actor and a nice guy to work with. And he's trapped in this kind of uh, sideline position. Does he do it? Well, yeah, I like watching him. I like his interactions. Uh, I just I just I kind of long for a Mission Impossible that would have allowed him to be more of a team member because I loved
0: him in Dubai. That was cool. They're all clearly members of the team. But I guess that's, you know, my issue is like, where is the team scene? Like, is there a sequence in this film where we have the team working together? Now, I know we've got it's Luther and Brandt. Are separated from because it, it, because I mean, everyone's after Hunt. This is the, the setup of the story is the IMF is shut, shuttered, completely closed down. Ethan won't come in. And so you've got Hanley. Going after him with all his force. And of course, great jokes abound there as he's just like, this is his last day. And then cut to six months later. Like, there, yeah, there are a lot of brilliant. funny bits with all of that sort yep. of stuff. But we've got all of the rest of them, like Brandt, Benji, Luther, all assigned to doing other things. And it's, you know, Benji comes into it with the whole thing with the opera, which is a fantastic sequence we definitely need to talk about. But it really is like Benji or um, Brandt and Luther they kind of get into the story a little bit delayed and they um it, it all kind of comes into Morocco and they all arrive in Morocco and they they uh find themselves all there after um Ilsa has gotten away with the uh the information. And so that's finally when the team comes together. But from that point forward, is there anything where it's really like, oh, this is the team really doing a team thing I guess building the box, but it's like that whole thing is designed to be a secret. So it's not even revealed to us till it happens. It's like, oh, the team was working together. We just didn't really see it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're, that's exactly right. Like we get he's present, he's like a team member in name only. Right. Like he's present, but we don't get him get to see him be have any like solid action sequences. And that's all I'm saying. Like, I feel like he's underused and and, you know, it is what it is. But um, but I just I like him in here. Not at all to say that the stuff Tom Cruise does in here isn't absolutely fantastic. Um, We can we transition to the next? I, I think this would be the next major set piece in Vienna. Do you have anything you want to talk about before Vienna? I know. Tom sends Benji Benji. We you should say Benji goes through this regular inquisition where he's hooked up to a lie detector test and, and is, is asked questions about uh, Tom Cruise. He's clearly frustrated by that. He hates working for the CIA and mostly just plays video games. Um, he but we also these... learn he's a really good liar. God, he's so good because I don't know if you remember this. I passed the field exam. Um. So he now knows how to pass lie detector tests. Yeah. Uh. He is sent two tickets. He wins two tickets to uh, the opera, and he goes to the opera. And it turns out, ugh, shock,
0: the cr- tickets were sent by Tom Cruise. So here's Benji, a, takes... Would you? Here's yeah. a question: If you randomly had two tickets to an opera in Vienna arrive in your mailbox saying you won, here's the, your tickets. Would you go to? Opera. Well, do,
1: don't you think they're like you get to the opera and it's like this, like you're sitting in Vienna and they want you to listen to a presentation on a timeshare
0: first. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I, Ethan, or Benji is so welcome to the idea of yes. like, hey, I want tickets to an opera in right. Vienna. This is great. <laughs> right. I'm, this weekend? Sure. I'm out the door
1: the the context though is everything like if i worked for the cia and i got two free tickets i might i might think what's up i wonder if this is a thing i wonder if this is espionage
0: yeah i it, there's there is it's it's so strange that there's like no thought in benji's head like that this is all some scheme or some scam or something that he's just like wow i won i guess i'm going to go i know <laughs> i know <laughs>
1: That's and it's amazing. just the
0: opera tickets. It's not even like free flight too. <laughs> he just goes, how does he get there? He's like, how much for a ticket to Vienna tomorrow? Oh, okay. So <laughs> they funny. pay really well. Really well at the I, at the or CIA, yeah. Right, right. Oh my gosh.
1: Well, uh so we're at the opera and it turns out this is when we get a lot of stuff. A lot of running around, a lot of characters and, and uh, malevolent figures in shadows. Uh, Cruz is there, and ostensibly they're there just to spot this guy, right? Just to spot Solomon Lane, because he's apparently going to be there, and there's an uh, apparently an assassination attempt, and so they're all there to stop it. Um, we, uh, we meet in this sequence a fantastic dress that is worn by uh, the wonderful Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah. And it's hard not to just shine a light on that dress.
0: Uh, Shine a light on the dress, shine a light on her. Like, uh, this... It was funny, because I remember seeing the trailer for this film, and I don't think I had seen her in anything before. You know, she had been in a couple things before this. The biggest one was probably Hercules that Brett Ratner did a year before this. I never saw that. and didn't have any interest. This is where I, I saw... And, I like, the trailer, I'm like, hmm, I've never seen her before. Interesting choice to go with, like, a no-name is basically my thinking. And then I watched the movie, and I'm like, wow. She just pretty much almost stole the show from from Tom Cruise. She was just that thrilling to watch on screen i loved their chemistry i love the way that they played together she's gorgeous like in scenes like with that dress not only is she gorgeous but then she's also doing all the spy craft and everything and um you know and, and and a very mysterious character that was the other thing about her that was so interesting like we met her earlier when ethan is caught by um by the syndicate and she helps him escape she's working for the syndicate as we find out she's covert for uh, British intelligence, but fantastic entrance for her as a character that gives us a lot of intrigue, who is this person? And then to come into this scene where she's like, we're like, wait a minute, she was just trying to help him, but now she's trying to assassinate this person. It's like they, they found some really clever ways to craft this script that always leave you guessing. And she's just, yeah, she's a thrill, absolute thrill. The shot. Of her
1: lifting her leg up to act as a stabilizer for aiming the flute sniper sniper rifle is so perfectly lit shot framed the works it is an exceptional bit of cinema <laughs> and it is so sexy i just there just aren't there's no other words she nails this part uh, is, love it, love it, love everything about it. The this is where I I sent you a video, and it's one of those YouTube clickbait videos. Uh, XCI agent rates all the Mission Impossible movies. How real is it? And I sent it to you, uh, and you didn't watch it because I sent it to you. We established that in the member pre-show. Members, if you uh, become a member, you can listen to the show live and join us for the pre-show. Andy doesn't do anything that I send him, and. Uh, but the reason I sent it to you is because this ex-CIA agent actually says uh, he rates all these sequences across Mission Impossible as things that do real CIA agents do all of these things. And I was blown away by how many of the things he rated highly in this franchise. The belaying into the vent in the, in the first movie to get the knock list, he rated that pretty high. He's like, that's that. The way we would do that presented these circumstances rock climbing in mission impossible Two, absolutely he rates that pretty high he said you'd be surprised how many agents actually do this kind of stuff and get really good or have to be trained on this stuff anyway for evacuations and things like that very high this sequence he gave a one and uh, I thought, OK, wait a minute. Why is there a one? He said, first of all, you any like we 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 experimented the government experimented in the 60s. A lot of covert like gadgetry, like the, the flute converting into a rifle. But you have to understand rifles like it, high precision rifles are incredibly fine. Uh, it, pieces of equipment. They are just very, very precisely machined. They take a, a, an incredible bit of expertise to do it. And what we found is when you're trying to convert objects like umbrellas into guns and things, they end up being, uh, like exploding. <laughs> they're just not, they're not really great, uh, at actually doing the job. Now, would they stage an assassination to an opera? Perhaps. Yep, that is a thing that you might do having so many people and doing it in such a such a way in this particular movie or this particular sequence was uh, not great. The other sequence that he rates very, very low, uh, spoiler alert, is driving very fast backwards. <laughs> so obviously, I think that's one that we will catch uh, in a moment. But um, overall, this particular sequence is one of the is a real thrill of this movie. And it is, according to the ex-CIA agent, the most fictional. So don't worry is what I'm saying. You don't have to worry when you go see Toronto.
0: But is it fictional the just the shooting part? But like, you know, going down the roof on the rope and stuff. Like there's there's a lot of things going on in the sequence. Yes. And I just think that he's yeah. he's he's judging this a little low based on one element in it. And so this is why I think he's For sure. Yeah. He's full of it. Fake CIA news. Fake CIA news. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here last. <laughs> It's, I mean, the sequence itself is fun, and yeah, I, I think they do a great job with it. It's beautiful, and it's interesting. I don't know what was in the air, but is it Spectre that has the James Bond sequence that's in the opera, where he kind of, all of a sudden, half the audience is all staring at him because they're all Spectre agents? Which one is that?
1: That is, uh, I believe that is Spectre. Um, and, he's,
0: and the spotlight comes down on him. Yeah. And, uh, well, no, that's, that's not at the opera. That's when he breaks into their facility, but there is the scene where he's following all of their communication and everybody like all the people in the opera are all like, they're all talking to each other through their little earbuds. And then suddenly James Bond is also talking to them. And then we see them all leaving. Yeah, And, um, but it's just like, there was something that was in the air clearly about having these grand sequences in these fantastic operas. And it just makes me wonder if, uh, I mean, I think scenes, this would actually be another interesting pre-show chat uh, down the road, but talking about movies that use the the spectacle of theater as a setting for a a scene within the film or sequence, because, because of some of the interesting theatricality that it can provide the dramatic lighting and the the big music beats and all that sort of stuff and just like the vertical nature of behind the scenes and all that sort of stuff like there's a lot of stuff going on interestingly behind the scenes and and in the in the theater that i think makes for interesting scenes and sequences in films Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And in the background of this one, we have Benji. I want to transition before we leave this sequence, uh, because Benji is in the closet uh, being funny and helpful as always. But he has a a piece of kit that we haven't seen in his uh, his actual like opera guide. He opens it up and it's an e-ink computer. Um, that he's able to swipe and touch and type on uh, both the the screen side. When he opens it up, kind of landscape, he's able to open it like a laptop. Uh, did
0: you uh, do, do you love do you love that? I think that's the silliest tech. I'm like, come on. <laughs> he is like swiping faces like through the entire thing. I'm like, don't they have something that can do this automatically? That was uh, I was a little surprised that it's like, look, scan, swipe. Scan, swipe. I'm like, come on. Is this just a joke on swiping uh, the culture that we have? Like, I I don't know why it was so slow. I'm like, he's never going to. He's going to take the entire opera to get through this house.
1: (laughs) That's right. As he goes one person at a time, there's like a thousand people in the Opera House. What I think is interesting, as always, like there is a hint of of reality to this technology and rollable screens like those thin film um, screens are and were at the time like bleeding edge kind of innovations. And we're seeing more and more of those kinds of screens. Uh, come out in this case it was still e-ink but color e-ink like all of that stuff is is right around the corner making it so so thin of course the other components required for like internet access like clean connectivity uh is 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 what is 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 where that's really kind of breaks but the screen i thought was really cool I, i i long for the days when i can open up my single sheath of paper and have a a dynamically generated newspaper. So I get the old school feel of reading a paper with my coffee, but it updates every day with the latest news. I think that's really fun. So I liked seeing it. Yeah, yeah. As stupid as the interface was.
0: (laughs) I do uh, think that there's an interesting element that stems from the idea of doing this at the opera here, at this particular opera that we have, where Joe Kramer, who does the score for this film, actually ends up integrating some of the music into several of the pieces over the course of the film, and I was like, it's really interesting to pull from the opera music, which is, I mean, it's a it's a famous, famous the the one the song that we hear here is a famous one. It's one of those ones that you always hear on like um, America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent or one of those sorts of things where some person out of nowhere suddenly can sing this amazing opera uh, um, uh, aria, and it's just like, oh my god, this person is the next great thing. But um, to integrate it into the score, I found to be a really interesting element. And I, here's the the plot. I've never seen this opera. The, it's set in China and follows the prince, Kalaf, who falls in love with the cold princess, Turandot. In order to win her hand in marriage, a suitor must solve three riddles with the wrong answer resulting in their execution. Kalaf passes the test, but Turandot refuses to marry him. He offers her a way out. If she's able to guess his name before dawn the next day, he will accept death. Is there something in kind of the story thread there that you think, oh, Joe Kramer's like, yeah, I'm gonna latch onto this because it's interesting? Like, is it this relationship that Hunt has with Ilsa as far as like there is this connection, but she kind of keeps refusing him? Like, do you find some connection with that that they might have wanted to pull to kind of bring into the the music? I'm sure that's like
1: a, a narrative sort of aural Easter egg, right? Like somebody had to have thought of that. It never occurred to me. And again, I, I've only heard it. And I know the the that principal song, for me, it, it became super famous uh, in Andrea Bocelli's performance of it. And it's like one of his standards um, and duets
0: and things like that. Like, it's really lovely. But um, I, I never made that connection, but I'm sure somebody thought about it. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's an interesting element. And, you know, I think it works well to use it that way in the score. I like quite a bit. Yeah, me too. The
1: next major sequence
0: of intrigue and awesomeness. We're getting into this point in the story where we're getting this conflict between how much does uh, Solomon Lane trust Ilsa? Because she kind of keeps actually, you know, getting, you know, helping Ethan, stuff like that even though she's trying to um, stay in his good graces because, of course, she's a, a deep-cover spy there. But um, she needs to do this mission in Morocco. Ethan has to, you know, she knows Ethan will follow her because she gave him something that would um, give him a clue. And that leads them to this very complicated issue where they have to go into this uh, vault in casablanca and retrieve this file that solomon wants and of course the whole thing is actually underwater and it's not underwater it's actually this complicated file which makes the whole mask bit in this film actually play really funny because we get to see this whole mask thing work and then we realize oh and none of that is actually happening it'll all just uh won't work because of the way that this machine not just looks at you but also tracks your movements and so they have to go into this underwater uh, torus and plant this um, this movement file of Benji so that he can actually get in, steal this file and make it out. And it is uh, it's a gripping sequence it's one that i always think about with this film because of um the underwater breath holding that tom cruise has to do and rebecca ferguson as we find out like they both they both um certainly put the work in to to do some actual underwater breath holding for this uh, film and we talked about it in our member pre-show chat like the whole idea of breath holding in film and and uh you know where it works and what are some of our favorite examples and everything. But this, it's, it makes for a really fantastic sequence. And in the, in the zone of impossible missions, I think that this really is a great example of really pushing something to the limits.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I really, I absolutely agree. And again, we'll say it again. It makes the behind the scenes making of this movie as interesting as the movie itself. Like it's a fun sort of cartoony run around spy movie. And also They trained Tom Cruise to hold his breath for six straight minutes. Like that's that's not (laughs) not easy or really fun uh, when you're holding it along with him. But it is uh, it's amazing that He puts himself through these kinds of things. It makes the sequence really, really interesting. Apparently, it makes shooting really interesting. Listening to McCorry talk about what it's like to shoot Cruz doing a sequence like this, uh, that it makes it much, much easier because he has confidence that Cruz is able to hold his breath long enough to get all the takes that he needs uh, and and not break as many times and reset as many times. And that's an extraordinary bit of of filmmaking feat. So uh, I thought it was really wonderful.
0: Well, and like some of the other uh, sequences throughout the franchise, and and the way that we've been talking about some of the behind the scenes, they actually filmed the entire sequence in one take. Like they they crafted it so they could do the whole three minute breath holding thing in one take, and then of course they do have to cut it and in to intercut the bits of what's Benji doing, what's Ilsa doing. Like we we kind of get to do that, but. They do craft it in a way, as Tom said, he likes to be able to get the do the stunts completely all the way from beginning to end. And then they can integrate all the different cuts and everything that they need to do. But just knowing that they were able to actually accomplish this whole thing in one take, I mean, I, I find that to be really compelling that they're pushing. And unlike some of those other ones where we had some issues with like the knife and how it's incredible that he actually had that knife so close to his eye but it kind of looks fake because the way they shot it. You also had that other, we had that other um, issue where the, I can't remember which one it was now, but there was another sequence in in uh, Mission Impossible 3 where it's like it wasn't as exhilarating because it just wasn't shot in a way where it it didn't sell the realities of what they were actually putting together. They craft these things sometimes where it's like, it's great that you did it, but then, put it deliver it to us in a way where we can really tell that you're actually going through the effort to do all of that work and, and put something together like that because otherwise it just doesn't sell and so I I think that in this particular case when we're seeing this I feel like he's really underwater it's not like a uh you know Lord of the Rings sort of foe underwater like when Sam is drowning in in the fellowship where it's like, he's on a dry stage with air blowing at him and they're shooting it slow mo to kind of like, "Uh, I'm underwater and I'm drowning. It's like nothing like that. We can tell that these, these are actors actually underwater doing some of this stuff. And I I think it makes it for an incredibly exhilarating sequence.
1: It really is. And, and yeah, to that point, like, you're right. <laughs> Give it to us in a way that demonstrates the actual feat of filmmaking and performance. Uh, they sort of hide that and obscure it with all the action cuts. That's you're, that's a really good point. Once again, even this movie, which I think looks great from the jump, like into the actual drain. Uh, it looks it looks good. It just, like, I, I feel like you don't understand what it took to make it until you watch the behind the scenes and see what Cruise and Ferguson put themselves through. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They uh, get the device. Uh, they do it. Ferguson or Ilsa rescues Cruise. And then we have the next betrayal, which leads to our car chase, which is uh, a, uh, another feat of physics
0: that that we get in this car chase and it's just again it just goes to show the lengths that they'll go to to make things look really cool to do things in interesting ways where okay we've got she steals the stuff and takes off she ends up with her team and they all hop on motorbikes ethan was dead and was brought to life with the paddles and um and so but then he's driving isn't driving very well, but it makes for an exhilarating car chase as they're going down the stairs and kind of up and down alleys. And you can tell like they're doing some real stuff and it makes for an exhilarating sequence. And then he hops on a bike and chases her down and has to drop when she hops off the bike and, and the whole big skid and everything like they're doing some really exhilarating sequences, moments throughout this sequence that just make for something that's an absolute thrill to watch. And I've seen you know dozens and dozens of car chases over the years Um, but this one still stands up as an incredibly strong one that is fun to watch and it feels real it doesn't feel like something that i'm getting in a fast and furious film Uh, this feels it may not be in line with something like ronin as far as like how much reality they're actually incorporating into the car chase but man does it feel like they're they're really close to that
1: there are two things that get me in this in, in this car chase. Uh, the first one is the pinwheel uh, handbrake turn that he does in the tight alleyway to knock over the motorcycles. That feels like the physics just don't line up with what's happening. And frankly, the airbags would have probably gone off by then uh, with with the damage to the front end of the car. And they don't. And the way... Like the way I understand airbags, it's like somewhere between 12 and 25 miles per hour. If there's an impact on the front, the airbags are going to go off. But then he drives backwards in what I imagine is has to be a BMW with like three reverse gears, which I don't think is a thing. <laughs> it's driving way too fast in in reverse. There should only be one gear. I think I've heard there's some cars, maybe Corvettes, that do have two reverse gears, but this should not be. The car should not be going as fast as it does. And uh, uh, but it gives us an excuse for some funny banter between Benji and and Cruz. And this whole time. Cruz has been dead. And I love, low-key love the way he plays, having just been dead. Like, he's a, it's like you see his body is just working because he's a professional and it's tuned to do the things that it's doing, like drive cars and do all that stuff. But also, he doesn't quite know where he is. And I think that makes this scene, that sort of absolve the the scene of some of the the wonky physics that I, that get in my way.
0: That And, and like the bit in the alley, it's interesting, because I mean, and, and I, I get your point as far as like some of the reality of what they're doing but they do actually really spin that car in the alley there the addition of the motorbikes and stuff like that like some of that stuff was added uh, but to see them actually go through the process of spinning it in the alley and it's fun listening to uh, Simon Pegg and Tom Cruise talking about it because Tom's like Simon kind of just goes along with everything and yeah. is is totally okay with it and I I kind of don't want to tell him how dangerous all of this is but he's just like yeah I trust I trust Tom and I know he knows what he's doing but like watching their faces as they're going down the stairs and you see the the cameras like right on them as they're actually doing it like you can tell like these are two actors who are like in a car that's going up and down something incredibly <laughs> fast. Know. Because both of their faces, just like some of the reactions and like it, to to the hits and the bangs and all that stuff, I mean, it's like oh, it just it it's very fun to watch, very fun. The
1: stairs, just driving the car, bouncing down those stairs is like the most horrifying thing in it. Because I'm like Andy, we're not young men right now. Like, put yourself in that car and experience what that would do to your neck. Like, my neck goes sideways when I sleep funny for 25 minutes. Like. This would be, I'd be broken. I would be a yeah. broken
0: person. It's very funny to, to watch. Um, yeah, it's it's a great sequence. And and also the behind the scenes are great in things like that because you see how they really do it where they actually yeah. build the ramps on each of the stairs so that they can actually do that. I mean, it's, obviously the car is still going to be damaged everything, but it's not going to be hitting actual stairs. It's not going to be damaging, probably more importantly to the location. It's not going to be damaging the stairs themselves. Yeah. Um. So but but I, I bring up all that
1: my concern about it, because the thing that takes me out of it, because this is another one of those things where I feel like it was shot one way, edited and produced and and incorporated into the film in a way that makes it feel less real than it was. Right. It's an it, it's the same curse of the turbine that they did some incredible stuff to make it work. And there's something about the presentation of some of those individual car stunts that feel off to me. I don't know what to do about it. It's great. I love it, but it's sideways.
0: Yeah, I guess I don't have that issue with it. I I really enjoy what they're doing um, through the sequence, and I don't end up having an issue. But I can see how uh, some might. I can see how some may have some issues. I'm. Some,
1: I'm. You're talking some. some I'm some. some.
0: You. Some okay. you. Yeah. All right. Some me. Uh,
1: okay. Where does that take us? Where? What's the next big thing you want to talk about?
0: Well, I, I just. I mean, we really resolve the film in London. You know, we we have this whole reveal that Ilsa as we already know, British intelligence. And we find out that she's working with her handler, um, um, Atlee. And we find out that this whole program, the syndicate was actually his idea of this organization for the prime minister to basically have free access with former operatives who were quote dead, but not actually dead and bringing them in and a ridiculous amount of money from all these offshore accounts that he could basically then use without any restriction to do whatever it is that he needed to do. We find out that um, Solomon Lane, uh, and I just, I love watching Sean Harris in this film. Like, there's something so creepy about his performance, which is kind of like, kind of this low-key villain. But I just, I don't know. There's something about him I really find incredibly compelling and just love yeah
1: they nailed it with him and i love yeah. that they keep him into the next movie
0: right and and we find out he's actually an ex mi6 agent and all like he was part of this plan with Atley, and and so that really leads to this final climactic bit of the film as we have uh, finally a chance to use a mask in the context of the film where we have Ethan posing as Atley, we have this whole staged thing with the PM and uh, the reveal as to what's actually happening. This is where Handley is finally brought in to the realities of what's going on. And they put the plan into place to catch Solomon Lane. And all of that, I think, is just it, it makes for a really compelling film because as we... Uh, And this is why I find Ethan to be a really compelling character, especially when up against somebody like Solomon Lane, because as he says to Solomon Lane when they um, are uh, when they confront one another, he says, you had this whole thing planned out. And then he's I can't remember his exact words, but it's basically like and I I knew I like I was able to figure it all out, too. And that's when we realized, oh, he actually is as far along as Solomon is with all this and has already kind of taken into account all of this. And that's how they end up leading to his capture in the glass cage, which uh, just, I mean, uh, great reveal in that moment when suddenly all the glass walls slide around him and he's locked. And and his final stand in the gas as he essentially is trying to refuse to fall. It's just, I mean, great way to kind of bring the, bring him down.
1: Plus, we get memorization porn which is the equivalent of research porn from The Dragon Tattoo, uh, where we get uh, to watch. Only in hindsight do we realize that Hunt has memorized all of the accounts and dollar values on the disc while staring at the screen, which is aspirational. Aspirational.
0: <laughs> it was one of those things. I'm like, mm, okay, that's, <laughs> is this his magic trick for this film? Is he like going right. to give him one bank account, and, but like this whole pose like i've got it all i'm the only way for you to to make to do all this like i'm like Meh, eh, eh. okay whatever it it works in the scope of ethan and in the games that he plays sure they uh part of the the rescue or or part of
1: the ruse is they have to um <laughs> they grab the the british prime minister and drug him and um Probably not something the CIA would be happy about. But, man, old rogue IMF is all about kidnapping Tom Hollander, who I think makes a great British prime minister, especially drugged. You have warm hands. <laughs> so good. Some great, great bits of, of dialogue there. And uh, uh, really a fun little performance from Tom Hollander. I like him a lot.
0: Well, it just in and, and that whole bit, uh, I think all of this in a fun way, plays with the idea of using these people as needed. And and sure, they're going to, quote, kidnap the prime minister. But really, this whole thing, again, Ethan is kind of building this ruse to, quote, kidnap the prime minister, but really build a situation where he can pose as Atlee. They can put him as Atlee in front of the prime minister with Hanley, get all of this information out there, and really kind of, reveal what's actually happening to both parties so that suddenly everybody actually knows what's happening and i don't know just the way that all of that played i i found worked like i didn't i imagine the cia and the prime minister are probably both a little uh upset at ethan for going through all of this but at the same time all of this information is finally out so if this is what they had to do i imagine they're like you know what for the greater good for the greater good the greater good i
1: I think it's uh, I think it's great uh, i I love it and and I do love the like there are some really sinister again bits of tech like there are a lot of close ups on eyes that have the contacts with cameras in them and uh, particularly at the end Cruz's speech to uh, Solomon Lane, where he's looking at the computer directly in the in his eye by way of Benji, is downright sinister. It's it's just really great. There are some really great moments uh, in, of of this stuff. You're I really awesome.
0: I love I love this movie. This is this is an interesting um, shift. I I don't know how big of a shift it is, but certainly there is this shift in Hollywood films where they started trying to figure out. How can we tap into the Chinese market? We want to have a bigger audience from there, get more money, get more ticket sales. Everybody who's profit uh, profit sharing gets more money on the back end of these movies. They very deliberately cast Zhang Jin Chu as Lauren, the CIA analyst. Her role in this film is to be the one who's doing the lie detector test with Benji. She's uh, a very popular person in China. She's an actress, she's a model, largely, though, put into this role that is all of, I don't know, a couple minutes in this particular film, so that they can have better access to selling the film overseas, in China specifically. This, I I was trying to find, is this one of those movies that also had a whole additional scene that was shot Uh, involving her in a larger capacity that was only shown in china i could not find that for this particular film but i do know that around this period this is this really started happening in a larger scale in films and it did it it, i don't know i guess it, it sent me down a rabbit hole i never found an answer but i it was something that um i do think that they were really trying to focus on at this point yeah that's really
1: interesting i i i'm very curious
0: I know there have been a few Marvel films done that way. Um, There may have been some other Tom Cruise films that were done that way. Um, But I don't know, I don't know how accessible any of that really is. Like even on like special features and stuff, I don't know if I've ever seen this is the additional, these are the additional scenes that we added to the film specifically for this audience. Have you ever seen any of those? I have never
1: seen any of them. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I have heard. I know Iron Man 3 had, a, had one. Let's see. Oh, here's a list of 15 movies that have that. Iron Man 3 is number 15. Uh, X-Men, Days of Future Past, Looper, Transformers, uh, Age of Extinction, Red Dawn, Karate Kid, the 2010 Total Recall, 2012, Titanic. Titanic. Culturally insensitive informa- er, stuff is, is cut. Let's see. The number one movie was Doctor Strange. But anyway, I think it's really interesting. I've I've never heard of this uh, related to the Mission Impossible franchise, but uh, I, and I wouldn't have any idea how to find those movies. Dark Web, the Syndicate maybe has them. We should ask the Syndicate.
0: <laughs> it's I I definitely think it's an interesting thing for sure because even in as I was saying, even in a film like this, just the addition of this Chinese actress just for such a small scene probably um, helped them to be able to tap more into that market.
1: Yeah. Well, and you can tell with the logo, what is it, China Film, or something at the front of this movie? Like you can, you can always see. Like, I wonder how many Chinese studio uh, backers are, are behind this money. That'll guarantee how many Chinese performers are in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, we will be right back. But first, our credits.
1: The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Jacob Pietras, Sorial Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.
0: All right, how to do an award season? Um, it, you know, it did okay for itself. It wasn't it's an interesting franchise. It it gets nominations, it doesn't have tons of wins, um, but it still is getting the nominations. Six wins with twenty-six other nominations. At the Visual Effects Society Awards, it was nominated for Outstanding Virtual Cinematography in a photo reel project, lost to Star Wars The Force Awakens. At the SAG Awards, it was nominated for Outstanding Action Performance by a stunt ensemble in a motion picture, but Big year for this, lost to Mad Max Fury Road. Over at the Motion Picture Sound Editors Golden Reel Awards, it was nominated for Best Sound Editing Music in a Feature Film, but lost to Star Wars The Force Awakens. The Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Action Adventure Film, but lost to Furious 7. And Simon Pegg was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Adam Driver in The Force Awakens. And, of course, good old Tauros World Stunt Awards. Uh, This was nominated for four. Uh, best fight this is where the lead character uh ethan and ilsa take on the bad guys in the dungeon he's handcuffed for most of the fight wire rigs were used for part of the scene to assist with some moves um and of course the fantastic leaping vertically up the pipe (laughs) jeez
1: we didn't Uh, even talk about that rescue
0: core stroke yeah uh but this lost to the church fight in kingsman the secret service best work with a vehicle this is where ethan chases uh, multiple bikes in a black bmw m3 and eventually on a bike the chase starts in the alleys uh, we we know what the scene is it's a fantastic thing it goes all the way through him um uh, going down on the the ground and rolling but lost to furious seven when two cars slam into each other go down a mountainside filled with trees and cliffs chased by two bad guys with one car being launched 60 feet through the air and impaled on a fallen tree the other bad guy flips while in pursuit of the two cars that sail off another cliff the two cars then turn to avoid a large cliff a camaro jumps out of the woods slams into a car and pushes him off the edge of the cliff all of the car work was practical with the help of some effects rigs those crazy kids in those franchises um We had a win, Rick English, hardest hit. This is where Ethan is riding the motorcycle under the bike of a stuntman, causing him to high side and be thrown from the bike. And last but not least, uh, nominated for Best Stunt Coordinator and or Second Unit Director for Wade Eastwood and Greg Smurz, but lost to Mad Max Fury Road. Wow.
1: What a rough year to have, like, Mad Max Fury Road comes out. It's, that's a rough, rough competition in that arena. Crazy.
0: How did it do for the box office? Well, McQuarrie's first teaming up with Cruz for the franchise cost $150 million, or $190.5 million in today's dollars. The movie opened July 31st, 2015, opposite Dragon Ball Z Resurrection F, John the Sheep movie, and the limited releases of the end of the tour, The Young and Prodigious T.S. Spivet and The Kindergarten Teacher. This film took the number one spot for two weeks and stayed in the top ten for eight weeks, going on to earn $195 million domestically and $487.7 million internationally for a total gross of $867 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $5.2 million. Not as good as the previous one, but still very successful. Man.
1: what is What do you think? I guess this is a question I can answer. I'm, I'm curious what Tom Cruise's uh, total bankable value is like what is his uh, of all of his films? Has he ever have any of these films ever hit a billion dollars? Maybe we should wait.
0: Any of just specifically these films?
1: Yeah, like total gross eight hundred and sixty-seven million in today's dollars, four hundred eighty-seven uh, internationally, and one hundred ninety-five. Like that. That strikes me as we're we're close to seeing his single value. Uh, for a single film hitting a billion dollars, highest gro- grossing movie was Fallout, at eight hundred million globally at the time, and he's never, none of Tom Cruise have ever grossed over a billion dollars, but his total box office value is eleven point five billion, right now, that's crazy, for a single guy, that's a lot of responsibility. I don't envy Tom Cruise.
0: Yeah, I, I mean he's an interesting actor in that he does a lot of big movies like this, but when you think about somebody like Samuel L. Jackson, he makes some interesting choices to be in incredibly large franchises, even if he's not always the biggest part in them. Right. And Tom Cruise, you know, to a certain extent, he's tried a number of times to find franchises that he could helm, but this is the only one that's really stuck. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know, he's an incredibly bankable star but at the same time um there's a lot of stuff that he does that's like eh, you know
1: well great movie uh love it and glad we're talking about it this is we're in the right place for this franchise right now with these last few movies
0: yeah and we're getting to another great one um which we'll talk about next week so we'll be right back for our ratings but first here's the trailer for that movie Macquarie's Mission Impossible Fallout your mission
1: Should you choose to accept
0: it? I wonder, did you ever choose not to?
1: The end you always feared is coming.
0: And the blood will be on your hands. The fallout of all your good intentions. You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. One life over millions. And now the world is at risk. This is the
1: CIA's mission. If he had held on to the plutonium, we wouldn't be having this conversation. His team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job.
0: you don't understand what you're involved in you need to walk away please don't make me go through you how many times has hunt's government betrayed him disavowed him cast him aside how long before a man like that has had enough Ethan, that's not who we
1: are. Maybe we need to reconsider that. Yeah. You can't fight the friction.
0: So, how is he? Oh, you know. Same old Ethan. find it best not to
1: milk. Letterboxd, Andy. Oh, Letterboxd, you're the best. It's the best social media network for movie lovers. Uh, you want to go over to Letterboxd.com and let's Letterboxd. I've heard some other podcasters of late talking about it as Letterboxd. To, to make sure you understand that, that there's no e in the ed at the end where it should be letterbox d
0: like like vampire hunter
1: d yeah. <laughs> Right, just like that, It's it, except in the areas that it's not. Uh, but if you visit Letterboxd.com, you can set up your account. You can join up over there and start uh, cataloging all of the films that you watch. As you watch them, you can review them. You can see other people's reviews. You can comment on reviews and share your thoughts and build lists. It's really great. We love it. You can find us at Letterboxd.com slash The Next Reel. Uh, but Andy and I are both on there. Andy's, what are you, Soda Creek Film? And I'm just Pete Wright. Yep, you can follow us over there. You're not just Pete Wright, just to be clear. You're Pete Wright. No, you're right. I'm Pete Wright. Don't make it
0: confusing by throwing extra words in there.
1: I know. I should (laughs) not. Uh, But what we really want you to do, if you fall in love with it like we have, like we have, then you should support the show over there by becoming a Patreon or a patron or pro member. And when you upgrade... You get 20% off, and it works for renewals as well. Just visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. It will whisk you over to the checkout page with the discount already applied. You just choose if you want pro or patron, upgrade, you're in good shape.
0: Uh, what'd you do? I mean, it's an easy one for me. We've hit this point in this franchise where I just, I mean, really love all of these films. And so this is an easy five-star and a heart for me.
1: Yeah, five-star heart for me, too. That was quick.
0: Yeah, it was easy. Don't forget to visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. And remember, you can visit our membership page, thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn about our membership program, get early access to all your episodes, ad-free, tons of bonus episodes, lots of bonus content, and uh, plus you get uh, secret member channels in our Discord community. So. All sorts of good stuff. You
1: know, we should throw in too that um, you know members obviously get to watch along with the live stream. Uh, but make sure you check over to our uh, over on our letterbox letterboxd, uh, letterboxd page slash the next reel and check out our next season. We're about to go. We just have a few episodes left, and we're about to go on our annual little summer break uh, for a month, and then we'll be back with a great, great new season. I'm so excited about the season for next year. The next year, starting in August. Um, that we, I think we've just, I think it's a slam dunk set of movies, Andy. I'm really, I'm proud of us.
0: It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, next season, the full season uh, is looking at different awards um, categories uh, from the 30s through the 2020s. And Um, and we're looking at the films nominated in some of these categories and uh, talking about them and, and like what won, what should have won should there have been other things nominated, all that stuff it's going to make for a lot of really interesting conversations
1: absolutely
0: so what did you think about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation? We would love to hear your thoughts. Head over to our Discord community hop into the Show Talk channel we're going to be talking about it this week. Let us know
1: when the movie ends
0: our conversation begins Letterbox giveth, Andrew, as Letterboxd always doeth.
1: Mm. I'm I'm going to do our friends, uh, who's never met us, Demi. Uh, did you eBay? Mm. You know Demi. Oh, Demi. Uh, he is the highest activity uh, review on Letterboxd. Uh, he says, "Never going to forget the raucous cheer in the theater when Alec Baldwin says Ethan Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny." Absolutely love them letting Cruz play it a little days after the underwater mission and absolutely, absolutely love that the big sequence they marketed the movie with is the very first thing we see. The final resolution to this movie isn't even a set piece or anything. It's just talking and then running and it still works. Ballsy. Rebecca Ferguson is one of the best adrenaline shots this franchise has received. And I hope her returning means that she's being treated better than the other women in this franchise seem to have been. This one is a small dip between the Two franchise highs, but any other franchise would kill to have this be considered a dip. I don't think it's a dip. Demi, I disagree.
0: <laughs> that line that Alec Baldwin says. It's like he's clearly seen the film where Alec Baldwin says uh the line about I am God. Like yeah, that's exactly malice. that malice, that same sort of read that Alec Baldwin just does so perfectly. It's great. Yeah. What do you got? I've got a five-star by Ellie. Who uh, says this, Ethan, can you open the door remotely, Benji? Maybe. Ethan, well, that's all the confirmation I need before <laughs> I jump onto a moving plane.
1: <laughs> that's out of favorites. Patrick Willough says the best of the five films about Ethan Hunt, cold and crazy person. <laughs> so, true, so true. Good reviews, Letterboxd. You nailed it. Thank you.
0: Slash Audible.
1: It's the way to go. Season twelve was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible.
0: Series like Twilight, with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn all on Audible. Our train spotting series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow-up book that largely inspired T2 train spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books. And our
1: member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on audible
1: producing this podcast is a lot of fun but takes a lot of time we've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection
0: to our content plus they just jam those things in wherever they see fit we listened to you when you said you didn't like them so now we're directly appealing to you our dear listener please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to the slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you.
0: So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash
1: audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.